says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, and his brothers therefore said to him, Depart and go from here, and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. And then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. And Father, we just humbly ask now for the preparation of our hearts and just the assistance of your Holy Spirit to understand and to hear all that you would want to say to us in this passage of Scripture. We thank you for giving us the word of God that we can know it is your word. And so we ask that since you inspired it by your spirit, that your spirit would be our interpreter and our instructor this morning. Lord, you know what that means for each one of us. Please speak directly to our hearts in an individual in a direct and personal way this morning. Bless your word. And we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, how do you handle times when you find yourself under pressure? Whether that be pressure maybe circumstantially or sometimes pressure that comes upon us from people. And honestly, sometimes that pressure even comes that we put upon ourselves at times. Well, here in our passage this morning, we see Jesus under pressure. In fact, I think if you could title this passage of Scripture, you could entitle it Jesus under pressure. He's under pressure due to mistreatment, to intimidation, as you can see, verbal persuasion from those who are trying to persuade him what to do. We find Jesus facing opposition here, but staying on track and overcoming the pressure that he is feeling coming against him. And it's evident when you look at the life of Jesus that Jesus desired to stay in step with the will of God during his earthly life as a man. And not just to stay in step with the will of God, but even more, as we'll see this morning, to accomplish things on a divine timetable. That Jesus wanted to do things at the right hour, at the right time, particularly in regards to things like his revelation publicly that he was the Messiah and the Savior, as well as particularly his redemptive death as he would die upon the cross for the sins of the world and then rise again victoriously. And everything that Jesus did or did not do was never driven by pressure that he underwent as a man in his life in the flesh, but rather it was directed by a divine timetable. It was directed by God's divine timetable. And may the Lord help us as his followers, as we look at these things this morning, to learn lessons of that from this passage, that we would not live our lives 
driven by the pressures of our world or driven by pressures from within ourselves, but instead directed by God's spirit and seeking to stay in step with God's will for our life and even the timetables that God has for our lives in things. Look with me back in verse one as our text opens up. It tells us there after these things, Jesus, it says, walked in Galilee. And the reason for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. So take notice that Jesus was efficient in his time in his efforts as he sought to perform his ministry and serve people. And he did this, we can see here, by wisely avoiding things like unnecessary conflict as well as not seeking to instigate problems. Verse 1 tells us there that he walked in Galilee. As we said before, Galilee is the, the northern region of Israel. And this is where Jesus in recent months has been focusing his ministry efforts. The other gospel accounts record a great deal more about Jesus's Galilean ministry there in the north. And it says the reason he had been up in the north walking around there is that he did not want to walk, it says there, in Judea. And as we said before, Judea is the southern region of Israel and it's the area where Jerusalem is located. And again, remember, Jerusalem is sort of the religious capital of Israel, particularly in that day it was. It was where the temple was, the temple precincts. It was where all the religious leaders resided and operated. It was the epicenter of the spiritual life of Israel. And we're told specifically why by the Holy Spirit here, Jesus stood in Galilee and didn't walk in Judea. At this time, verse 1 says, notice, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, as we're seeing John use the word the Jews there, and we've seen this and we'll see it repeatedly, when John uses that phrase the Jews, he's not specifically referring in a general sense to the Jews nationally, but predominantly when John uses that term, he's trying to make a reference to the religious leaders of that day, the established religious authority. So when you see John writing the Jews wanting to kill Jesus, he's not talking about the Jews generally. He's talking specifically about the religious council of that day representative. And we see here the religious leaders at this point, it says verse one, wanted to actually kill Jesus or put him to death. Now we know this has been the case already back from chapter five. We're there, remember, in chapter 5, Jesus, it says, healed that man who was paralyzed on the Sabbath day and told him, rise, pick up your mat and walk. And as a result of that, the religious leaders were greatly incensed at Jesus because they felt that was a violation of their tradition and their interpretation of what the Sabbath day was supposed to be. So we read there in chapter 5, verse 16, as well as verse 18, that the Jews sought all the more to kill Jesus because he had violated their religious traditions as well as claiming to be God, indicating that God was his father. So Jesus knows at this point, opposition for him is increasing. Hatred and animosity is growing among the religious establishment there in the area of Judea and Jerusalem. So it says here, he just avoids the area by staying away, focusing his time and his service of people 
in the northern area there where there was greater openness to him and he could no doubt remain more effective in helping people which is just really an indication of the wise stewardship of Jesus. Please don't misinterpret verse 1 there as if somehow Jesus remained up in Galilee because he was intimidated of what would happen if he went into Judea. Uh, It's a very odd thing to me to envision that God is intimidated of man. Uh, The way people behave sometimes, you might think that in our world, but it's quite the opposite. God's not quite intimidated by humanity. And so Jesus is not up in the north because he knows people are wanting to kill him in the south uh, because he's intimidated or he's insecure. Rather, this is a matter of stewardship being demonstrated by Jesus because he has a desire to stay in step with the will of God and the divine timetable that the Father has set for him. And he knew they sought to kill him, but it was not his appointed time to yet be arrested and to suffer for the sins of humanity. So he avoids the tension and the risk remaining in Galilee there in the north so he could keep ministering effectively because he knew that in Judea there would be continual tension against him and opposition and resistance to his work. And I like this picture because Jesus, who walked in full harmony with the will of God, shows us an exemplary picture here that he did not feel the need to prove something. You understand what I'm saying? This is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. And he didn't feel the need to go down to you know, uh, Jerusalem and, and, and there be among all the resistance and demonstrate and puff out his chest with his divine authority. As if somehow he knew there'd be resistance. But you know, I'm going to show out resistance isn't going to stop me. Instead, you see the exact opposite. Jesus humbly adjusts to what's going on to pursue peace to minister in a way that would be most productive there in the north. And this shows incredible, incredible meekness of Jesus Christ. And remember, the word meek does not mean weak. The word meekness, the word meekness is, is authority and power under control, subdued. It's like a thoroughbred horse with incredible power and then you break a horse. That horse's power has not gone away. It's just now, in a sense, that power and authority is there, but it's under control. And this is what meekness is. Here, Jesus has all the authority of heaven and earth coursing through him. He is God in human flesh. And yet Jesus, very meekly here, avoids the area. He doesn't go down and stir up problems and instigate issues. Again, though Jesus never backed down from saying or doing what was right, Jesus also, notice, was not an instigator. He wasn't a problem solver or a problem starter, excuse me. He, he didn't generate strife and tension or, or force his way in a situation. Well, this is the way it's supposed to go. So whether you like it or not, it's, he didn't do that. Jesus was meek in his temperament. He, he didn't generate strife or be forceful. Instead, he was a problem solver when issues arose. And sometimes, as we see here, that even meant sometimes he just avoided issues before the problem even started. He just had the wisdom to realize why start tension? Why start a problem when I can just humbly avoid that from transpiring? And I'll tell you, may the spirit of Christ, who the Bible says dwells within us if we're his followers, may the spirit of Christ lead us to live the same way. That there be a measure of meekness in our lives, that we would seek to be problem solvers rather than problem starters. 
That we wouldn't be people who, for the sake of feeling we need to prove something or demonstrate something, would actually instigate strife and, and tension, but instead would walk in meekness and stewardship and wisdom as we see Jesus doing here. Look at verse 2. It tells us the timeline of this account. It says, now Jesus, or excuse me, the, the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. Now, John there gives us a real good indication of the timeline of what's going on at this occasion here, particularly chapter 7 we're looking at. It says the Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. That was one of the three major or main festivals that Israel celebrated that God had given to them. It was a week-long, if you would, sort of a spiritual holiday. Uh, we've talked about a lot of these things on Wednesday nights in our study through the Old Testament there. You might want to jot your notes here, Leviticus chapter 23, because that tells us regarding the Feast of Tabernacles a little bit about that feast. It happened on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which meant that it was a fall feast. Typically, it would happen and happens still to this day around like the September-October time frame on our calendar. And the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles was, remember, to celebrate or to commemorate in memory the faithfulness and preservation of God, of how he had cared for and sustained the nation of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years there out in the open country. And what they would do is actually create these little tabernacles or booths and what they would do when they would celebrate for that week is you would create this little sort of you know lean-to type structure whether with branches or palm branches particularly and you'd create these little outside shelters and the family would actually it was almost like a week-long camping trip would live inside this shelter and it was intended to have enough coverage so that during the day you were shaded from the hot mid-eastern sun but yet during the evening, there was enough opening through the branches that as you laid there as a family, you could actually see the stars. And it was intended to invoke curiosity in the children. So there was occasion for the father to explain to the family, say, Father, why are we living out here like this? Why are we out here underneath the stars? And it gave an occasion for the father in a very tangible way to say, well, the reason why, son is because for 40 years our forefathers wandered through the wilderness and God gave them shade. They had a pillar of cloud by day to keep the brunt of the sun from them and he gave them a pillar of fire by night and he sustained them for 40 years as they lived under the stars and water came forth from a rock and God provided manna for them and their clothes didn't wear out and it was just this beautiful way as the family would celebrate for this week God's faithfulness and preservation to recall those things to mind. Now, because it was one of the three major celebrations, there were multiple festivals Israel celebrated, but three were major celebrations, Tabernacles, Passover, and Pentecost. And because this was one of the main three, we know that it was mandatory for all Jewish males to be there in Jerusalem at attendance. It was required, the males three times a year were required to be there in attendance again and emphasizing the spiritual responsibility of the fathers, the males, age 19 and over were responsible to be there for that time of worship. 
to, to have their hearts, in a sense, worked on by God so they could continue to provide spiritual leadership to their family. But typically, though the males were required, normally pilgrimages would come and entire families would usually join in as well. The males were required those three times, but a lot of times the entire family would travel as a caravan. They'd go up to Jerusalem. And these were important times in the spiritual life of Israel where thousands of people, envision in your mind, Thousands of people would flood into the area of Jerusalem like a shore community. It would swell in its population. There was incredible excitement. Jerusalem came alive. And the people there would be feasting and celebrating. There'd be great spiritual excitement. And because John tells us in verse 2 that the Feast of the Tabernacles is now at hand, that gives us a little bit of a timeline because this is the fall feast prior to the upcoming spring festival of Passover where Jesus would be crucified. So we therefore know because of this that we are now about six months away from the crucifixion of Jesus, which tells us something of John's gospel, that from this point forward, the remainder of John's gospel gives us primarily what transpired in the last six months of Jesus's earthly life as he headed to the cross. That's why John's gospel gives us some of the material that we find that's unique and not in the other accounts. And it's the reason why intense opposition we'll see now begins to come against Jesus because this is the last six months leading up to his crucifixion. Now, in light of this major feast of tabernacles being at hand and all that would entail everybody going to Jerusalem, that's why verse 3 in context tells us this now. It says, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, that is up in the north, and go into Judea there in the south where Jerusalem was, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, they say to Jesus, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers, verse 5, did not believe in him. So at this point, notice Jesus' earthly siblings now offer him some counsel. And they're seeking to persuade Jesus or kind of pressure him to go down into the area of Jerusalem to do what? To promote himself. Like a political figure, to go there and to promote himself. Now I want you to take note as a sidelight, first of all, verse 3, verse 5 clearly indicate to us that Jesus had brothers biologically. That Jesus had a natural family, a blood family, even sisters as well. In fact, if you read Matthew 13 or Mark chapter 6, there the Bible under the inspiration of the Spirit of God actually gives to us even four names of Jesus's earthly brothers as well as it's saying that he also had sisters in the plural sense which indicates to us biblically, despite from what people would try and say traditionally, that Jesus was the eldest brother and had at least six or more younger siblings in a natural blood family. Now, certainly, absolutely, they were what we would call half-brothers or half-sisters, his other siblings, in that they had the same mother who was Mary, but yet had completely different fathers because Joseph was the father of his other siblings, where Jesus, the Bible tells us, had no earthly father. But instead, God, the heavenly father, was the one, remember, Jesus' life, who miraculously placed the very life of his eternal son into the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
So Mary, being a virgin, receives miraculously the life of the Son of God being put into her body, which allowed Jesus to therefore be born uniquely, being fully God and fully human at the same time, which was absolutely essential because that allowed him to be the perfect mediator between God and men because he had in touch with divinity and he was simultaneously in touch with humanity so he could build the mediation and the bridge between the two and be the perfect savior for the sins of mankind as God, in a sense, added humanity to his deity. Yet after Jesus was born from the Virgin Mary and after she gave birth to Jesus, her and Joseph, listen, had other children naturally like any other married couple would matthew chapter one says that after joseph receives the 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 revelation from the angel that mary was pregnant with the son of god and the savior because remember he was startled to find the woman he was engaged to to be married was pregnant with child and after he finds out this is the plan of god this is the son of god miraculously placed in her womb joseph it says joseph then being aroused from his sleep did as the angel of the lord commanded him and took to him mary his wife listen and did not know her that speaks of physical sexual intimacy he did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. In other words, the Bible says, yes, there was no physical sexual consummation between Mary and Joseph until she brought forth her firstborn son, Jesus. But then after that, the Bible teaches there was not the perpetual virginity of Mary. The scripture teaches that her and Joseph had a normal, natural marriage. And Jesus ended up having half-brothers and half-sisters, which indicates that Jesus grew up, which is somewhat interesting, in somewhat of a typical, you could say, rather somewhat large natural family. Himself and at least six other siblings. That's at least seven children right there. Growing up in a home together. Now think of this. Remember, the Bible tells us that Jesus, what? Never sinned. He was perfect. So envision this. A perfect child. Never a terrible twos. A perfect teenager. Imagine that. And imagine if you would, family dynamics. I can't imagine the challenge for his siblings. Your older brother is perfect. Literally perfect. You know, were there ever a case? That means every day Jesus always made his bed. His room was always clean. He never back talked. He always came in on time with curfew. You know, all these things. And, and you know, was there ever that dynamic there? And, and perhaps did it ever fall out of Mary or Joseph's mouth? Why couldn't you be a little more like, G, like your brother Jesus? I mean, what's the matter? I mean, that must have been very difficult. And I can imagine, honestly, again, don't super spiritualize the reality. Imagine the challenge of Jesus' brothers growing up in that. I mean, it must have been somewhat of a difficult challenge there as their elder brother was actually a perfect, sinless man as he was living among them as the Son of God. We're told there in verse 5, look at it, it says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, take notice of this. After 30 plus years of Jesus' life, after Jesus is three years into his public ministry, the miracles, the teachings, even it says, verse 5, even his own brothers did not believe in him in this point. 
after all of that. Mark 3 actually tells us at one point in Jesus' earthly ministry that his family comes to where he's at and they're saying he's out of his mind. Please come back home. Because as they're watching this go on, they're thinking he's going a bit overboard in this whole Messiah complex thing here. And, and Jesus' brothers here, imagine this. Imagine all they saw, all they heard, his public ministry for three years going on at this point, And though they are raised around and exposed to the life of Jesus continuously yet, Though they're so exposed to the things of the Lord, their hearts are what? Still resistant and they still have not accepted it for themselves. They still don't believe it for themselves. Now, I look at this and I think, man, what an indication of how firsthand continuous exposure to the things of the Lord is no guarantee that any person will genuinely believe in him for themselves. Think of what Jesus' brothers saw and experienced. You want to talk about exposure? Exposure to the things of the Lord? But see, faith is a choice. Faith is a decision. People choose to believe for themselves the claims of Scripture and who Jesus Christ is. And let me be very candid. There are some people who have been exposed to the things of the Lord a lot. And yet they still don't genuinely believe who Jesus is for themselves. Because they have chosen to not yet believe even his own brothers did. So there's no guarantee that just because someone is exposed to the things of the Lord. Listen, I've had the mentality as a parent since day one raising my children that I can do my best to expose you to the things of the Lord. But I can't give you as a child an experience with the Lord. I can expose you to things, Lord, but you need to have your own experience with Jesus. And as a young person, listen, in some ways, if you're being raised in a Christian family, it's one of the greatest blessings. Certainly, you could not ask for better, but by the same token, quite frankly, it is one of the most slippery slopes that there is spiritually. Because your parents' Christianity doesn't just wear off on you. You don't just gradually absorb it. You need to realize the reality of your own sinful condition before a holy God and who Jesus Christ is for yourself. And choose to say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I choose. I'm choosing. I understand now. I'm choosing to live for you myself and to follow you myself. And, and this to me is just a, a, a shocking but yet very real reminder. His brothers at this point, they still didn't believe in him. Ultimately, we know some of them do after the resurrection. But it's no guarantee just being exposed to Jesus that someone will automatically choose to follow Jesus or believe in him. And I think that's why verses 3 and 4 here almost give, you know, again, keep in mind, this is from an attitude of unbelief. And that's why I wanted to emphasize that to you. Verse 5 says they don't yet believe. It's from an attitude of unbelief, I think maybe even a little bit of cynicism you hear in verses 3 and 4 that his brothers are now saying about this feast that depart from here, Jesus, go up to Judea that your disciples may see these works that you're doing. For no one does in secret uh, while he himself seeks to be known openly or publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers, again, are kind of suggesting if you want to be popular... If you want to have a following, and by all means, if you want to be the Messiah someday, you need to get yourself out there. 
You need to get down there to Jerusalem and show yourself off. And that's the religious capital. You'll have a real platform there to show your power to your onlookers and to those among you. One translation renders these verses. Jesus brothers urged him to go to Judea for the celebration, saying, go where your followers can see your miracles. They scoffed. You can't become a public figure if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, prove it to the world. And I think that captures the sense. His brother's likely aware, keep in mind, that he just lost a good number of followers. Do you remember what we saw at the end of chapter 6? John 6, verse 66. It says, from that point on, many of his disciples no longer followed him or walked with him anymore. And they're thinking, probably like some good businessmen, hey, you need to recoup your losses here, Jesus. You've, you've lost some customers. So here's our suggestion. You need to get down there to Jerusalem because Jesus down there in Jerusalem, if somebody wants to be popular or a public figure, and certainly if you want to be the Messiah of all Israel, you got to be strategic here, man. This is politics. You need to get down to Jerusalem and get yourself out there. Jerusalem's where the crowds are. That's where all the movers and shakers go spiritually. That's where all the religious leaders go and, and where the influential spiritual people get their platform. If you stay up here in the north, that's like doing ministry in secret and obscurity. You need to get down there where the feast is going on, where the crowds are, and they say to him, you need to show yourself to the world. You need to show yourself. They're persuading Jesus. If you are who you are, you need to demonstrate that, man. You need to make evident who you are. Now, here's what's interesting. That's not the first time that suggestion has come to Jesus. If you remember, last time it came, Luke chapter 4, that suggestion came directly from Satan himself. Where Satan himself gave temptation to Jesus, it says Luke 4, bringing him out to the corner or the pinnacle, the high place of the temple, and said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For certainly the angels will step in and capture you and catch you and it'll be a dramatic display. Wow, look, the angels broke out of the heavens and came and rescued the Son of God before he fell onto the temple stones. And again, whether it was Satan's suggestion or here his brother's suggestion, the temptation being presented to Jesus is what we call the pride of life. And the pride of life is basically a desire to exalt oneself before others for your own personal advantage presenting yourself, promoting yourself, doing what you can to take pride in who you are, to get some advantage or gain. What they fail to realize is Jesus' primary interest is not to be popular. It wasn't just to get famous or to do what he could to you know, increase his following. He overcomes that temptation and pressure, if you would. Jesus resists the pressure of those encouraging him to do something that would be outside of the will of God. And the pressure of, of his humanity, he overcomes the pressure of temptation to sin and leave, lives to please the Father because he wants the Father's approval, not the applause of humanity and all those who will be around him. Jesus sought to live humbly as a man and serve for the glory of God. Philippians 2 tells us it was the exact contrast to what they were suggesting. Listen to it. Philippians 2 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he wasn't claiming something unfair by claiming deity. But listen, Jesus made himself of no reputation, 
taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given the name that is above every name. So as Jesus' followers, again, who have his spirit at work within us, and if you claim to be a Christian, if you're truly born again of the spirit, the spirit of Christ this Jesus Christ lives in you now, lives in me now. And it should seek, that's why Philippians 2 says, to give us the same mindset so that we would walk in a manner like Jesus did. And in this sense, part of that walking in that manner is that we have a different mindset than the world does. We're not self-promoters. We're not people who are always trying to sell ourselves and get ourselves out there and seek to push and to persuade and to do what we have to do to somehow, by worldly mindsets, you know, do the things that appeal to our flesh and make ourselves look better and gain everybody's approval all the time and follow Satan's temptation toward the pride of life because that comes in our life too. Where we love to talk about ourselves and our accomplishments and we're the hero of every story and, and we're just always looking to, do you know what I can do? You know, the occasions I meet Christians like that, I meet them in the first three minutes, they tell me their whole resume. Hi, it's my first time at church, and here's my whole resume. Well, are you here to worship, or are you here to sell yourself? And see, these are the issues of the pride of life, and Satan tempts us to do that. Instead, Jesus made himself of no reputation. He just humbly lived out his life, and, and in doing that, what happened? God exalted him. God lifted him up. The path of humility. The Bible says that before honor comes humility. And as we humble ourselves, God honors us in, even as he did Jesus. So Jesus, brothers, they're putting the pressure on here. Persuade him. You need to get down there. You need to go show yourself to the world. Look how Jesus answers verse 6. He said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, Jesus says, because I testify of it as works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus indicates that he's operating in a way, what, as I said, to purposely stay in step with the will of God. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said there, I've, not, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So because Jesus lived that way, not to do his own will, but the will of the Father in heaven, Jesus made decisions daily with that specific interest in mind to always pursue the will of his Father, to stay in step with that process in his life, which means that Jesus, as we can see when we study his life, lived very different than the average person. In the sense that particularly, Jesus did not just do whatever he pleased, number one. And number two, Jesus also did not do what he wanted whenever he felt like doing it. But he was sensitive to timing instead. He lived in submission to a higher purpose. And that involved a couple things which we see here in these verses in front of us, that first of all, as I said, Jesus lived in a way that remains sensitive and in tune with a divine timetable of when he was to do things and when he was to refrain. Part of Jesus fulfilling the will of God was being sensitive and staying in tune with a divine timetable. Do you notice in verse 6 and 8, there's a repeated 
phrase of Jesus. Verse 6, he says, my time has not yet come. Then again in verse 8, my time has not yet fully come. Jesus was living his life as a man with set time of events to happen. There was a set time for Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah. There was a set time for Jesus to die upon the cross for the sins of humanity. John chapter 2, Jesus said to his own mother there, my hour has not yet come. And we see that term multiple times throughout John's gospel of this hour, Jesus's hour, this timetable. Everything Jesus's life revolved around and hinged upon that important hour. That hour that had been set for him to do what his life was all about. John chapter 7 and 8 tells us nothing could happen to him prior to that time. You read John 7 verse 30 and John 8 verse 20. It speaks of how they couldn't kill him because his hour had not yet come. And then when we get into chapters 12 and 13, even in chapter 17, there Jesus starts to say, my hour has now come. But everything hinged around this hour this staying sensitive to a timetable and here jesus is facing pressure to do things but what is he doing he remains faithful to staying on track with the father's timetable and his purpose and plan that's why jesus says here i'm not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet come if jesus went prematurely he would risk prematurely being arrested or put to death and it was not the set hour for those things to happen and Jesus would not try and rush God's plans. He would not try and force God's purposes to come to pass sooner than they were intended to and the timing wasn't right. And I think here Jesus, as he speaks to his brothers in response, points out the contrast that those who do not live on the other side, those who do not live according to God's will, for them... Any time works to do things. Any time at all that they are ready to do what they want to do. Because why? They're simply pursuing what they want. They're the captain of their own fate. They're the Lord technically of their own life. They're not looking for God's approval. They're not trying to stay in step with God's timetable. So therefore the proper timing to them for every matter is now. That's why Jesus says to them here in verse 6, your time, he's talking to his brothers who aren't seeking to fulfill the will of God. He says, your time is always ready. In other words, what Jesus is saying is any time works for you, but it's different for me because I'm trying to live in accordance with the will of God. You know, Waiting is a foreign idea to somebody who's not interested in God's will because it just seems like a waste of time. Why would you waste time? If you want to do it, do it. Carpe diem, seize the day. Now's the time. And for someone who's not really concerned about following the will of God, they're not looking to follow the Spirit's leading. They're just kind of living for themselves. Now is always the time. Any time works. And I think there's a lesson in this for us. From Jesus' human siblings living a fleshly existence as a natural person, I think there's a lesson here, and that's this. One of the indicators that we're starting to live, listen, outside of the will of God one of the indicators of that is when we begin to disregard God's timing in the matters of our life. One of the indicators when I'm starting to live outside of God's will is when I just dismiss and disregard 
what's God's timing on this though? Maybe God is wanting this to happen. Maybe God is going to do this or God wants it. But God, what's your timing on that? And when we start to disregard God's timing and we don't take that into consideration to pray about it or be sensitive to it, we're starting to step outside of God's will because that's what Jesus' fleshly brothers were doing in their natural attitude, not interested in the will of God. And here's why. Because the flesh is always in a hurry. It's always in a hurry. The flesh always says now, I want this, so why not? I want to have sex now. Why wait till marriage? I want it now. The flesh always says, I have this desire. I have this interest. Now is always the right time for the flesh. That's how the flesh works. The natural nature of a man, of a woman, always says, there's no better time. If I want it, I'm going to push forward. I'm going to go get it. I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to seek after it. And it doesn't take into consideration the reality that maybe God has a plan and a purpose and there's a right time to do something. I would just say this morning, you know, be careful when you find yourself under pressure from without or from within, and it comes both ways. Be careful when you find yourself under pressure to dismiss and disregard the importance of God's timing for matters in your life. Because you'll struggle with the pressure from within and you're always going to hear people from, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Just if you want it, go do it. And there will always be that pressure. But we have to remember the Bible clearly teaches that God has a set time. God has an appointed time for things. The Bible tells us when we read it, God makes all things beautiful in his time. In his time. That's how it becomes beautiful. The Bible tells us that there is a time for every purpose under heaven. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5, if we walk in the Spirit, let us stay in step with the Spirit. That if we live a spiritual life, then let's stay in step with the Spirit's timing and how things unfold and when they unfold, which means that sometimes we have to say, this just may not be the right time yet. Maybe this isn't the right time yet. And so I don't want to try and force the hand of God or thrust something forward. I want to stay in step and be sensitive to God's timing because that's a part of staying in tune with the will of God and not caving in under the pressures of what we feel upon our lives. Another part of staying in step with the will of God, Jesus shows in verse 6 to 8 also, is it meant dealing with not always having the approval of everyone. And even more, facing resistance sometimes. You see what he says in verse 7? The world cannot hate you, Jesus says to his brothers, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. So another part of staying in step with God's will is not just being on, in tune with a timetable, but sometimes staying in step with the will of God and not giving in to pressure upon our lives means that we need to be willing to not always have everyone's approval and even sometimes face resistance as we seek to follow the will of God. Jesus indicates here how the severe animosity and hatred that was being felt towards him by the people was because his teachings and his life did what? Revealed the works of the unsaved world and humanity were evil. In other words, Jesus' life exposed sin. And people don't always like that. It tells us in John chapter 15 that Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Therefore, the world hates me. 
So Jesus said, the reason they hate me is because I took away their excuse to continue doing what was wrong because Jesus' life and words represent the standard of righteousness. And so it shines light upon what is dark and it exposes things for what they are. And because Jesus challenges sin in humanity, it makes people feel a sense of guilt for their error. And people don't like to feel guilt for their error. People want to do what they want to do and please do not tell me if it's right or wrong. People don't like to have that exposure and a sense of guilt. So because of that, it creates animosity in them. It creates anger and and, and a great animosity towards Jesus because of all of what his truths and his teachings and his works represent. But yet notice Jesus never buckled under the strong pressure of intimidation or ungodliness, or the threats of darkness. And can I say as his followers, really, nor should we. May we, by the grace of God, as we live in a very dark day ourselves, where evil is prevalent and the pressures of darkness are going to increase, that we would, despite disapproval or hatred for what we stand for, for what we represent, for what we believe in our lives and words, which are going to expose sin and evil, not buckle under the pressure of that, but instead that we would be willing to not cave in under human pressure of always needing to have people's approval in our lives, but that we would have the courage to say, listen, right is right. And whether I never have anyone's approval, I will continue to believe what is right. And, 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 and I may lose the acceptance of certain individuals, but I would much rather put my head down on my pillow at night and say, God, we're right. Okay, Lord. If it's okay with us. And, and Jesus said, listen, John 15, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. And if we're going to represent Christ, I tell you, listen, there's going to be animosity. There's going to be hatred towards us. We don't need to, as I said earlier. We shouldn't be problem starters and rude and instigating strife and tension. But there comes a line where we look, no, this, this is what I believe. See, the problem with our culture today is tolerance is not true tolerance. The world wants us to tolerate ungodliness in what they believe. But tolerance means I allow you to have your opinion, but you also allow me to have my opinion. See, this is not true tolerance today. This is you must tolerate our ideas and our agenda, but we will not tolerate what you believe because you're a bigot if you believe that or you're a homophobe or you're radical or you're archaic. Or, and this is not true tolerance. So the reality is there is going to be animosity and hatred and we can't buckle under that. We can't cave under that pressure here. Look what it says, verse 9, as our text kind of wraps up here. It says, when Jesus had then said these things, he remained in Galilee. So as his brothers went down, he was comfortable to stay where he was and remain behind. In other words, he didn't allow himself to be forced into doing what everyone else was doing. Jesus remained there. Hey, you go. I don't need to do what everyone else does. And that's a great reminder as well, as he did not have to do what the rest of the crowds were doing. He didn't fall into that pressure. You go. I'm secure in who I am and what God's leading me to do. He followed his father's will, not the crowds or the opinions of other people. And that's great counsel for us. Follow the Lord. Don't listen to what others are telling you to do. Don't cave into the pressure or persuasions and suggestions of your family or your friends. 
You follow what the Father in heaven's telling you to do. And be comfortable. Maybe others are going to do something. It doesn't mean you have to join them. You remain in the will of God where he's leading you to go. Verse 10 says, When his brothers had then gone to the feast, he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So again here, he goes eventually, but somewhat covertly, you could say. Jesus goes up to the feast, not openly and publicly, with the caravan of his whole family and the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, because again, he's not seeking fame. He's not looking to foolishly start problems. He knows there's threats against his life. He wants to stay in step with the Father's timing. So he goes up more quietly, more discreetly. It says there, verse 11, and then the Jews, as would be expected, sought him at the feast and said, where is he? So as anticipated, they're on the search for Jesus, thinking this is the feast. He's got to be here somewhere. He always attends. Where's he at? And again, they're not looking to shake his hand. They don't want to give Jesus a high five. They want to harm him. They want to destroy him. So they're saying, where is he? And verse 12 says, there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Notice at this point, there was a very divided opinion. Can you see that? About Jesus. Some people said, He's good as he teaches good things. He goes about doing good and helpful things. Others said, no, 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 this guy's a deceiver, man. His claims are too radical. He's too much into absolutes and, and what he says about himself and spiritual and eternal things. But yet, notice the life and teaching of Jesus is so powerful, it always forces hearts to decide. You got to decide because it divides the human heart and says, what are you going to say about Jesus? Who do you say he is? And the life of Jesus will always put that pressure upon people to make them decide. Verse 13 says, though, that despite the varying opinion among the crowds, you see it there? It says nobody would speak openly because of fear of the religious leaders. The fear of consequence and the pressure brought people into a fearful silence and they wouldn't speak openly what they believed about Jesus. Now, can I just say, that's kind of a sad thing when the fear of human approval or personal consequence keeps people from being open to declaring what they personally believe about Jesus Christ. And I would leave you with this question this morning. Is it possible that right now in our lives that you won't speak openly about Jesus because of fear of your friends, your co-workers, your family and what the consequence is going to mean that if you choose to say no I believe this about Jesus and this is who he is to me may God help us by the power of his Holy Spirit's boldness to have the grace to not buckle under the pressure of the fear of consequence in our culture to stand for Jesus we need more of that in this day amen let's stand let's pray together